Welcome to our first ever evening service here at ACC Northside. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor of a church that usually meets here on Sunday mornings. And now, as I said before, once a month we'll gather here in the evenings too. And then come next Easter, we hope to start meeting every Sunday evening. And we're so glad you're here. Uh, some of you are regulars here in the morning. Some of you are friends who are here in support. And some of you might not really know anyone here or know what's going on. And we're especially glad that you're here tonight. And we hope it's the first visit of many for you. I also want to thank Griffin and the band for leading us in some really great music. But I'd like to invite you to turn in the Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes, to chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And in those blue Bibles in the pews, this is page 553, and the bulletins there will tell you where to go for that. I'll read that in just a moment. But as you're turning there, what I want to do is to throw a wet rag onto all of the positive energy in here and tell you that your life is meaningless and that you should despair. Sorry. There was a philosopher, a philosophy professor once who literally lived and died by that belief. He called himself an existential atheist. Uh, he, he didn't believe in God. He, he didn't think there was any purpose or meaning in life or the universe. And in his worldview, any authority over his life was also arbitrary and meaningless. So there's, there's no God, so God's not an authority. And even his employers, the, the university authorities, were also pointless people whom he didn't need to listen to. So he didn't show up to teach class when he didn't want to. He did whatever he wanted. So, of course, they fired him. And then, sadly, a few years later, he took his own life because life's pointless, so, so why live? And as he was dying, he took notes of his experience as a kind of a philosophical experiment. And here's what he wrote. These notes are from my students. And in case I find no meaning in this suicide, and I doubt I will because there is no meaning in anything, maybe they will find some irrational mystic meaning in my thoughts as I am dying and taking notes. Life is meaningless, so despair. He believed that to the end. Well, you might be surprised to know that there is a writer in the Bible who entertained similar thoughts. His book is called Ecclesiastes, and here's what he says there in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, again on page 553. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much, vexation, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow." That's an invitation to despair. He's pulling us along on this journey, and your reward for making it to the end is cold hopelessness. So what I want you to do tonight is tell you why you should despair. But then, I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't. So first, here's why you should despair. 
Because your wisdom and knowledge can never be enough. Your human wisdom, which you trust instinctively, your, your intelligence, your good sense, your education, your achievements, they can never be enough. They will always fail you. They, they will always hit the brick wall of reality, and it will push you to the point of despair. It, it should push you to the point of despair. The book of Ecclesiastes is interesting for lots of reasons. One of them is that not everyone believed that it belonged in the Bible. Uh, Some ancient Jewish theologians said that, they looked at this book and said, this is just too pessimistic, it's it's too cynical. The Bible is supposed to be hopeful and encouraging, not despairing. Well, the book ends with a twist, and we'll, we'll get to that in a few months. But what we're going to do for these first six previous services is to look at how it gives every single positive human endeavor a fair shot, and each time the conclusion is, nope. Wisdom and knowledge aren't enough, which is tonight. Pleasure isn't enough. Work isn't enough. Wealth isn't enough. Good health isn't enough. Everything that you might look to for your happiness Everything that you might look to for your security or your safety, your peace, gets dismantled piece by piece until you have nothing left to stand on. It's really interesting how these words of despair line up pretty closely with our own cultural mood of despair. Listen to these statistics. Listen to how people today are indeed despairing. We'll start with young people, the people who should be the, healthy, the healthiest and happiest and most idealistic among us. According to research by Gene Twinge at San Diego State University, in the last 10 to 15 years, the rates of severe depression reported by young people has increased by 52%. The rates of psychological distress have increased by 71%. They think social media has something to do with that, and apparently wealthier young people are afflicted with depression and distress even worse than others. Other people are despairing. You might have heard the phrase diseases of despair. That's uh, drug and alcohol overdose, suicide, and alcoholic liver disease. Uh, these diseases have, uh, of despair have skyrocketed in the last 20 years, especially among working-class whites who never attended college. Here's one more. Take suicide for the whole population. Uh, many of you have been crushed by suicide And it's happening to so many people. According to the American Psychological Association, between between 2000 and 2016, the national suicide rate increased by 30%. And among girls and women, it increased by 50%. And for people between 10 and 34 years old, it is the second leading cause of death. Put all those numbers together, and the national life expectancy rate has declined for the last three years in a row. It's the longest consecutive decline since the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. A hundred years of people living longer and longer, and now, in the last few years, we're not. It's easy to get lost in those numbers, but but the truth is is that our culture is living in an age of despair. And what the author of Ecclesiastes wants you to know is that you actually have good reasons to despair. Here's why. Here's one reason. Because your wisdom and your knowledge can never be enough. Wisdom in the Bible means to understand life and the world and how to practically live in this world. So it's intellectual and it's practical at the same time. And in these words that we just read, the author makes the same point about wisdom from two angles, two perspectives. 
Anik's perspective has the same rhythm to it. He, he says who he is, he, then he goes into a, a deep dive into wisdom, then he tells what he, what he found out, and then he, he, he gives a proverb to summarize the point. So look who he is. He, he calls himself the preacher or the teacher in some translations, and the king of Israel. Um, we'll just call him the preacher for short. Then in round two, he says that he's the wisest person who's, who, of anyone who's ever been in his position. Which means that this person is either King Solomon, who was the, known as the wisest king in Israel, even though he did some pretty stupid stuff. Or it's, it's written as a kind of essay in the voice of Solomon. But either way, the, the, the point is, think of the person who has the freedom and the resources and the mental capacity to explore human wisdom. You, you, you can be the smartest person in the room, but if you're working for the man, you're just not going to have the opportunity and the capacity to discover the deepest secrets of the universe. But here's someone who's the smartest guy around, and he's got the power and resources to let his intellectual pursuits take him as far as he can go. That's who he is. Then he does a, a deep dive into wisdom. It says he seeks out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. He, the whole breadth of human life and activity comes under his gaze. Then in round two, he does another search into wisdom and folly. He, he looks at wisdom and its alternatives. But he goes as deep as you can go into human wisdom. And look what he finds out. That it's all an unhappy business that God's given people. Verse 13 says. Literally, it's an evil business. What he learns is that it's all vanity, meaningless. It's all striving after the wind, which is a poetic way of saying that it's an epic exercise in futility. The British philosopher Bertrand Russell would have, would have agreed. He said that man is a product of causes which have no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the, ac- the outcome of, of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. It's all a meaningless striving after the wind. But, but why? Why does the best of human wisdom bring you to the point of despair? Well, two reasons, the preacher says. Because your wisdom can't fix this broken world. And because the deeper you go into wisdom, the more hopeless you realize the situation is. That's what these two Proverbs are saying. So verse 15, what's crooked can't be made straight, and what's lacking can't be counted. In other words, this world is bent and it's missing something. It's incomplete. And your most brilliant wisdom, your your highest knowledge, your, your most impressive achievements can't do anything about that. It's always a losing battle. And then in the second proverb in verse 18, there's a matching correlation between the depth of your wisdom and the depth of your despair. The brokenness of this world, the unhappy business that we have to go through, is a cold reality that we smash into. It's not that there's, there's some secret just around the corner, and, and if, you, if you just keep digging, if you keep searching, then you'll crack it. 
Instead, you keep digging and you keep confirming your reasons to despair. Human wisdom, your wisdom isn't enough, and that's why you should despair. I wonder if those of you in, in public service or in medicine or those kinds of professions feel this tension every day. And I used to work at, at Starbucks, and a lot of cops would hang out in our store. We, uh, we took care of them, and they took care of us. So we got to know them a bit, and we asked them about what, what it's like being a cop. And I remember one man, probably in his 40s, had been a cop for a long time, saying that if I'm after a suspect and he runs down an alley, and the only way I can catch him is if I run down the alley after him and tackle him, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to injure myself or get myself killed for this guy. He's just one more low-level drug dealer running away in the night. It's not worth it. When he said that, I thought, but you're a police officer. It's, this is your job. This is what kids dream about when they're, when they're little. You're supposed to get the bad guy. Then I realized that if this is what you deal with day after day, and night after night, and year after year, of course you're going to feel this way. This city, which is so broken and empty that there's no way that me chasing a guy down an alley is going to fix it because there will always be a guy to chase down the alley. Trying really, really hard is not going to change all that much. A doctor once told me something similar. He said that in the past few years, in the time between graduating med school to where he is now in his career, that the, that the medical field has digitized to such a degree that doctors are relentlessly pressured to prescribe as many billable treatments as possible. So you see a patient, you, you put your report in the, in the computer, and the algorithm tells you all the things that you could do to treat this patient, all these tests, even though you know that you don't really need to do them. But whatever you do, whether you follow the algorithm or not, the the care that you administer gets put into the computer. And all that data is available for your superiors, the hospital administration, the pharmaceutical companies, maybe. I don't know who else. But you're a doctor. You're smart. You became a doctor because you want to help people. But now, not only are you up against human sickness and death, but you're also, you're just one person in a giant system that isn't always so altruistic. I've read that doctors have some of the worst job satisfaction levels. And that's for good reason. Our best human wisdom, our best human knowledge, and at the end of the day, there's nothing we can really do to make any of it better. Now, we've been really philosophical about this. You know, I feel like we should all go later to a, an art house and watch some old black and white French movie and, where they're sitting in a cafe and you know, smoking cigarettes and saying, you know, life is meaningless. We? That's how French people talk. But let me try to bring this down out of the clouds as good as, as practical as I can. If human wisdom isn't enough and it can only lead you to despair then that means that you have no good reason for trusting in yourself. If the best human wisdom only gets me so far, then if I trust in myself, if I'm confident in my own abilities, if I rely on my knowledge, then all I'm doing is setting myself up for despair. So what this passage is doing is undermining your best reasons for self-trust. But here's the deal. You probably do trust in yourself more than you realize. You see, if you want to find out what really drives you, 
what really reveals who you are to yourself, look at what you trust. Trust also means faith, what you, what you believe in. And if you're a Christian, you, you might instinctively say, well, I, I have faith in God. I, I believe in Jesus. Or if you're a secular person, you, you might say, I'm not a person of faith. That's not who I am. But forget what you instinctively say. Go deeper. What, what, what do you instinctively do? What, what do you really trust? What do you rely on to anchor your life? What do you put your confidence in to direct and guide your life? When you face the unhappy business of life, what anchors you? That thing that directs you to get you through this confusing, meaningless life, this world, that's what you trust. And if you trust human wisdom, you're putting your trust into something that's not enough. How do you know if you're, if you're putting your trust in this meaningless wisdom and knowledge? How do you know if, if you are trusting in yourself? Here are a few signs. If you ever find yourself asking the president of Ukraine to investigate your enemies, you might be trusting in yourself. All right, that was low-hanging fruit on that. But stick with politics for a moment, though. We're a year away from the next big election, we live in a culture where everything is always political. Do you find yourself thinking that if so-and-so comes into political power, then everything will be made better? I've seen ads on the L for a new show about politics where the tagline is, we promise to promise you everything. George Packer recently wrote in the Atlantic magazine about trying to navigate the New York City school system for his two kids. The school system there is, I hope, crazier than it is here. It's, it's infected with a, a ruthless competitive meritocracy and a, and a dogmatic, almost religious political ideology. And, and Packer counts himself in these, in these same political circles, and he writes how his own political tribe had, in just a few short years, gone from this exuberant hope to hopeless rage. And that rage, that willingness to demonize, is now standard for both sides of the political aisle. Because under that rage, under that political disillusionment, when your side is out of power, or, when, or, or under that, that feasting on the spoils when my side is in power, under all of that is my trust in the wrong place. I've looked to the pinnacle of human wisdom, and it disappoints me. It leaves me with rage. And despair. Here's another sign that you're trusting in yourself. When your plans fall apart, and you fall apart too. You know the line from Robert Burns, you know, the, the best laid plans of mice and men. When everything that you had hoped for goes wrong, when everything you've worked for comes up short, when everything falls apart, do you fall apart too? Does your life lose its value? Are, are you overwhelmed with defeat and hopelessness? If so, it's, it's probably because you've wanted your human wisdom to be what it could never be for you. You've trusted in yourself. David Pallison, one of my heroes, before he died, talked about how after he had a heart, a heart surgery, he was very physically disabled for something like six years, never in really good health. Uh, by vocation, he was a writer and a, a counselor. So someone, he needed his brain to work well. And at one point in his recovery, a, a medication he was taking had the side effects of, of clouding his thoughts. He, 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 couldn't, he couldn't finish sentences. It, it was like he said, you know, forgetting your, 
your way home after making that same trip for 20 years. That's what your brain's just too cloudy. And, and it really challenged him because he thought, if I can't use my brain, if I can't complete my thoughts, then I can't do my work. And if I can't do my work, then what purpose do I serve? What value do I have? If my brain is shattered, does my life still have a point? And it challenged him to wrestle with the question, what am I really trusting here? Am I trusting my mental capacity and professional accomplishments? If I fall apart, when my plans fall apart, then maybe I'm trusting in myself. One more sign, how you know if you're trusting in yourself. Your anger. When everything falls apart, when your best laid plans go astray, what do you do to the people around you? In Brett Lott's novel, Jewel, a poor Mississippi family moves to California so that their daughter with Down syndrome can go to a school that specializes in serving kids with disabilities. So they make a life in California. Their daughter has the best resources for her. But then after the girl turns 18, the father of the family decides he wants to go back to Mississippi. He never really felt home in California. He never really wanted to go there in the first place. So he wants to go back, and without the blessing of anyone else in the family, they sell their house, load up, and go back. And he's got all, he's got all worked out, where they're going to live, what they're going to do. And it's a disaster. Nothing goes right. Everyone's miserable. And finally, it breaks him, and they go back home. They go back to California one more time. But before then, he's trying desperately to make it work, and it's, it's just not working. And it turns him into a bitterly angry man. He's a simmering, resentful, defensive man because he trusts himself. So you, when, when it all falls apart, how do you treat the people around you? Do you target them? Do you scapegoat them? If, if, if only you'd done your job, if only you were different, if only you weren't around. A few months ago, one of my, my sons told me, Daddy, you need to take a nap. I had been sniping every innocent comment. I was criticizing everything because I was facing something really hard and that had nothing to do with my family and it felt like the ground was, was crumbling beneath me. So I put on my gloves against everyone. Even my son knew something was wrong. What's going on there? Your anger in those moments is a kind of self-defense mechanism. It's protecting your self-trust. It's like when, an, when a, a small animal gets cornered and it explodes in fear and rage. And, and your anger can be like that self-defense. It's protecting what you trust and value the most. Yourself. So I trust in human wisdom, and I swing from idealistic hope to disillusionment and bitterness. I trust in human wisdom, and when my plans fall apart, I fall apart. And I trust in human wisdom, and when it all falls apart, I protect myself by attacking you. And what the preacher here says to that is, of course that's what happens. Because your wisdom and knowledge will always run into this brick wall of cold reality. Your wisdom, your knowledge isn't enough. It'll never be enough. And that's why you should despair. So here's why you shouldn't. I just told you why you should despair. Now here's why you should not despair. If you know a wisdom and a knowledge that comes from outside of you, 
the best wisdom, human wisdom will never be fully trustworthy because it can't fully and finally do anything about this hard, broken, sad world. So that means that if you're going to rely on wisdom, it has to come from somewhere else. And you know that the writer of Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us what that wisdom is or where it comes from. All he can do as, as the wisest person around is tell you how his wisdom is ultimately powerless. But what the Bible says is that there's another preacher, another king, whose wisdom doesn't come up short. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says that there's a difference, a world of a difference between human wisdom, the wisdom of the world, and God's wisdom. It's not just that, 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 that God's wisdom is bigger than human wisdom, but that God's wisdom and human wisdom can be fundamentally incompatible to each other. Here's what Paul says. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, the greater preacher, the greater king, is Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. And what Paul says, and somewhere else, after explaining God's his mercy and grace to us in Jesus, is, oh, the depth of the, the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. There's a difference here. The best human wisdom leaves me disillusioned. The wisdom of Jesus is what rescues me and gives me hope. Jesus The wisdom of God takes this broken and incomplete world and he heals it and it makes it new. My wisdom cannot do that. But here's the deal. God's wisdom in Jesus, the Bible says, looks like foolishness to human wisdom. It looks offensively stupid because God's wisdom was executed on the cross. I love what Fleming Rutledge says. She says, Christianity is unique. The world's religions have certain traits in common. But until the gospel of Jesus Christ bursts upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. The point of crucifixion in the Roman Empire was to publicly advertise that this person is not fit to live. He's scum. He's less than human, he's an insect, and he should die like one. And you're saying that that crucified scum is the wisdom of God? Yeah. Because God's wisdom looks like foolishness to human wisdom. The gospel is the good news that says that Jesus died for you. He died in your place. And the reason he had to die was because of sin. My sin comes out of a self-trusting heart And Jesus died to rescue my self-trusting heart. That's why I need to trust him. And because Jesus, the wisdom of God, endured the despair of the cross, when you stop trusting in yourself and you trust in him, you belong to him now. Your identity is in him. Your freedom is in him. Your hope is in him. Every truly good and lasting thing you have is in him. 
And when you despair of trusting in yourself and you trust in him instead, he gives you every reason not to despair. Because the truth is that we still live in the same world as the preacher in Ecclesiastes. It's still an unhappy business that we've got to live through. And everything can still fall apart on you. And your plans can change. Your dreams can die. But when you trust Jesus, instead of trusting yourself, and everything falls apart, you don't have to fall apart too. Because now you belong to him. And no changed plan or dead dream can separate you from him or from his love. And when you stop trusting in your wisdom and you trust Jesus, the wisdom of God, everything can fall apart on you. But instead of that that self-defense mechanism, which is where your anger comes from, you can rest in a wisdom that endured the stupidity of the cross to protect you eternally. He protects you. When you trust him, rest in him, you can stop protecting yourself with anger. That's the difference between trusting in yourself and trusting in Jesus. It's the difference between two kinds of wisdom. And if you have Jesus, you don't have to despair anymore. I spent this past weekend building Legos, which, to be honest with you, is not the worst way to spend a weekend. One of my sons had a birthday recently, and his big gift was the Saturn V rocket Lego set. The real Saturn V rocket was the Apollo spacecraft, which the spaceship was sent us to the moon 50 years ago. But, but this Lego set stands over three feet high and it has almost 2,000 pieces in it. And my, my son and his brothers had spent hours and hours putting this thing together, and it was really impressive. But then earlier this week, a soccer ball in the house went airborne, and it hit the Lego rocket. And hundreds of pieces flew everywhere. And what was left was the bulk of several big sections now disconnected from each other. And hundreds and hundreds of tiny pieces and smaller sections scattered everywhere. So my son asked me to help him to fix it, to put it all back together. And I said, sure. But the thing is, this rocket is so complicated and the damage so extensive that there was no way I could take each broken piece and put it back in its right right place. There was only one thing I could do. I had to dismantle the rocket entirely. Take every single tiny piece apart and then start from the beginning, step by step. That's my weekend. But what the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants you to do is to think about with your wisdom, your self-reliant heart, like that Lego said. It's broken, it's in pieces, and it needs to be put back together again. But the way to do it is first by tearing it all down and coming to the place where you can say that when I trust myself, it's all pointless. It's all vanity. I do trust myself, so I've got to tear that trust down and then start to put it back together again, but not with your wisdom, with the wisdom of Jesus Christ, who loved you and died for you, and putting the pieces of trust and faith back in, and now is trust in Jesus. And now, as you trust him, hard things still come at you, despairing things still happen to you, but you don't have 
to despair because you have Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that our true wisdom, that you are our true wisdom and knowledge. You've rescued us and given us every good gift through the foolishness of the cross. We confess that we instinctively have high hopes for our wisdom, our performance, our professional qualifications. Show us, Lord, how the right conclusion is to despair of them, that we would despair of the ways we trust ourselves. And show us how in Jesus everything may still crumble and fall apart around us, and yet we don't despair. We ask this for his sake and in his name. Amen.